This podcast was recorded on Thursday, July 19th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And I'm Jeff Sherman. And today we have a special guest. His name <laughs> is Peter Schiff. Welcome, Peter. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so Peter is the Chief Global Strategist at Euro-Pacific Capital. He's also the founder and chairman of Schiff Gold. How'd you get to, uh, I ask a lot of guests this thing, how'd you stumble upon a company that actually encompasses your own name? Oh, you know, it's just happen chance, I guess. Shift Gold used to be called Euro-Pacific Precious Metals. And so the origin of that is I had the broker-dealer, Euro-Pacific Capital, and I had not actually been selling gold to my clients. I basically just said, go buy some, you know, just, you know, find a dealer and buy yourself some gold. Although I did in 2001 or two, I started a relationship with the Perth Mint in Australia. So I began buying gold for my clients and having it stored in Perth. But I also advocated that my brokerage clients have some gold in their possession. And so I just told them to go buy some. But then I started getting a lot of horror stories. My clients would end up getting the bait and switch. They would call up a firm and then they would end up being sold a bunch of overpriced semi-numismatic coins that had these big markups. So I decided to just kind of create my own firm, but I didn't want to do it through the broker dealer and be subjected to all the FINRA and uh, SEC. So I set up a separate company and we called it Euro-Pacific Precious Metals initially to kind of be consistent with Euro-Pacific Capital, but then ultimately decided for marketing purposes and maybe even FINRA purposes to kind of create a bigger separation of the entities we ended up changing the name to Shift Gold. So you mentioned talking about it in the broker-dealer capacity versus your clients actually owning the physical gold in their possession. How do you think about those two things? Because I hear a lot of, I'll use the phrase gold bugs, just because they get a bad rap out there. But people who have all this investment in gold and they own it through brokerage accounts and it's through exchange, they, oh, it's physically back, so it's okay, I can get it on demand if I need so. But if there truly is that one-off kind of event, that financial crisis where the system melts down, don't you want to own more in your possession than actually through these other entities? Yeah. How do you think about that? I have clients that own some physical gold exposure through ETFs, and and that's fine. And especially you know if it's an IRA, I mean, I know you can physically own gold in an IRA, but it's it's so much easier just to, to buy the uh, ETF. But yeah, if, if things really hit the fan, if things really get bad, you want to have some gold coins in your possession. And plus, I think it's just nice to have them just so to remind you of what real money is like, to remind you of what it feels like to have it in your hand. And, you know, I started recommending people buy physical gold when it was under $300 an ounce. So it's not like it's a bad trade. Oh, look how much gold is down from the top. Well, that's true. It's down from the top. But this is still a bull market, despite the fact that we had a multi-year correction. Well, you can say that about any investment. Look how much it's down from the top. Like say maybe not yes. Amazon today, the day we were recording here, it hit a new high on Amazon Prime Day. Well, one day they'll be saying that. Yeah, but you know, exactly. yeah, there's always going to be peaks and troughs in any asset. And clearly gold got ahead of itself at 1900. Uh, I think it's cheap now. But 
I've always too advocated that people have five to 10% of a portfolio in physical gold. So it's not like even if you bought the top, it's not like you destroyed yourself. It's not like it's a stock and it went bankrupt. I mean, it still have a lot of value. And if your portfolio was bigger, now you can average down, right? Because if gold was 10% of your portfolio and now it's 5% because gold went down or other assets went up, well, now you can rebalance and now you can buy some more gold at a lower price, which if I'm right on where gold is ultimately going, it's better than having you know bought more at a higher price. Fair enough. So I guess that begs the question, where is gold ultimately going in your view? Well, I think gold's going a lot higher. Perfect. So (laughs) let's kind of substantiate that with some thoughts too. What's the basic premise on why gold is going a lot higher? Well, I think the world is going to have a monetary crisis. And I think when you have a monetary crisis, and again, this is all fiat money, it's all money substitute, whether it's the dollar, the euro, or the yen. But I think the world is going to start to lose confidence in central banks. If Obviously, they haven't lost it yet. It's kind of beyond me why they haven't. But I think that day is coming. And I think as people lose confidence in monetary alternatives, they're going to seek out the real thing. Right now, you have some people that think they found the alternative in the cryptocurrencies. But I think a lot of people that are in the cryptos are going to learn the hard way that that's not real money either. And I think a lot of people are going to move into gold, particularly when it's the dollar. And I think it's the dollar that's going to be the epicenter of the monetary crisis. Even though all of these fiat currencies have problems, I think the biggest problem is going to be with the dollar. But then, of course, once the dollar goes and people see that, then, you know, well, what about the euro? What about the yen? What about all these other fiat currencies that are fundamentally no different? Maybe their national economies are somewhat stronger than the U.S. They don't have quite as much debt. They have more savings. They have more production. Maybe they have trade surpluses or current account surpluses. They're creditor nations. But at the end of the day, the currency is still backed by nothing. And if people can have so much confidence in the dollar and the dollar can implode, well, then what does that say about these other currencies? And so I think there'll be a rush, not only among central banks to shore up their gold reserves to create confidence in their own currency, but individual investors and savers around the world are going to want to own gold. So it sounds like you have a distaste for the fiat currencies. Is it predicated upon the fractional reserve system? Is it really central banks and the printing presses that do exist out there through sovereign entities? Or is it an amalgamation? How do you get to that? It's not so much the fractional reserve system. And you can have a fractional reserve system with honest money in a market-based economy because then you have banks can decide how much reserves they want to have because they have to balance the potential for a run on the bank. See, if you didn't have government FDI and CT insurance, which we should not have, right? We should have individuals concerned about what the banks do with their money. We don't want the moral hazard of government telling depositors, don't worry. And we don't want the banks to feel that their depositors don't care so that the only incentive they have is to maximize return without any regard to risk. We want banks cognizant of risk. We want bank customers worried about risk. So they'll shop around and reward the banks that have the least amount of risk by you know, entrusting their deposits. So if you have bankers who know they have to balance the risk of the reputation of their bank and a potential run with how much reserves they want to keep, they will strike a balance. So you don't need to have 100% reserves. You can have some fractional reserve system in a healthy banking system. But what we have now is way beyond that because the actual percentage of reserves is tiny. And so all the banks are basically insolvent. But my problem with the fiat monetary system is, first of all, it's fiat, right? Money needs to be 
an actual commodity. I mean, money is basically the most liquid, the most marketable commodity. That's why gold served as money so successfully for so long. Plus, it had other properties that allowed it to be money. But you want to have a reliable store of value in money. You want money to be a medium of deferred payment. You know, we can transact, we can make contracts, long-term contracts payable in money. We can borrow and lend knowing what the money is going to be worth. These are all important characteristics. But when the government comes in and substitutes a real commodity for just a piece of paper and just the confidence that the government is going to keep it scarce, history has not looked kindly on those schemes because politicians always take advantage of their ability to create money out of thin air and they do it. And, you know, we had a crisis in 1971 when we went off the gold standard because the dollar, which was defined as a certain amount of gold, the Federal Reserve notes that were in circulation were really IOUs for dollars. And all of our foreign holders of dollars, foreign central banks could turn in their dollars. If you had $35, you were entitled to an ounce of gold. But even with that, the government still in the 1960s ran huge deficits. We funded the war on poverty, the Great Society. We went to the moon. We fought Vietnam. Right? We had these big deficits. And the government was printing a lot more IOUs than we actually had gold. And in order to prevent a run on our gold, we went off the gold standard. But even with the discipline of the gold standard, we printed too much money. But ever since we left that, we lost all discipline. In 1971, money supply growth is off the charts. They've just been printing money like crazy. They've kept interest rates artificially low. Under a gold standard, that's impossible. Interest rates would be much higher to reflect actual savings and consumption patterns in an economy. But by being able to keep interest rates artificially lower because they control the money supply and they control the interest rates, we have constant cycles of booms and busts. And the U.S. economy has been allowed to evolve on this trajectory, which is completely unsustainable. I mean, I think we really felt the opening tremor in 2008, right? That was the beginning. Anybody who thinks that was the end of the crisis doesn't understand the crisis. That was just the beginning. The main event is coming up. And if you remember, nobody really predicted all the mainstream economists that are out there, whether they're in Wall Street or in academia or working for government, nobody saw that crisis coming. But that was an obvious crisis if you understood the monetary mistakes that the Fed had been making. You knew how they were going to manifest themselves. The housing bubble was probably the most obvious bubble there's ever been, right, if not the cryptos. Well, they said that, remember, it wasn't the Fed's uh, job to uh, speculate on what are asset bubbles, if you recall, right? Wasn't that a... It was just their job to create them. But of course, they never want to admit that there's a bubble because the last thing they want to do is prick it because they want to keep it going because in the short run, bubbles are fun at least if you're betting on it and you're involved because now everything is great. Everybody, Think of all the people that were getting rich off real estate without working. Nobody wanted that party to end, right? Just buy a house and sit back and watch it go up and lever it up and use your house as an ATM and everybody was benefiting. So I don't like the fact that you enable these bubbles, you allow the government to basically step in and price fix interest rates. I don't believe that the government should be setting interest rates any more than they should be setting the price of bread or the price of oil. It's an important price and it needs to be discovered in a free market so that you get it right. It does sound like today that the administration is trying to control the price of oil too. That's a whole nother issue as well. Well, I think obviously Trump is trying to talk the price of oil down because I think he realizes that if the price keeps rising, 
that uh, might not bode well for Republicans in the midterms. Right. And he doesn't care if we blow through our entire strategic reserve. He's not thinking long term. It's like, oh, we've got an election coming up. How can we keep the price of oil? But the price of oil is going to go down because of the large deficits that are the consequence of the tax cuts that Trump is bragging about. Remember, when oil prices went up in the 1970s, remember, oil went from $3 a barrel in the beginning of the 70s up to about 30 right? So it's a tenfold increase in the price of oil. And back then, U.S. politicians were blaming OPEC. Oh, how dare you jack up the price of oil? It wasn't OPEC's fault. They weren't charging us more for oil. We were trying to buy their oil with cheaper dollars. When we were buying oil in 1970, we were given OPEC gold, right? The dollar, we were saying, here, here's $35. That's an ounce of gold. So if we were buying a gallon, uh, we would buy 10 barrels of oil for an ounce of gold. Now we're trying to say, well, sell us your oil, but we're not going to give you real money anymore. We're going to give you gold. We're just giving you these pieces of paper that are backed by nothing, that are redeemable in nothing. And they kept losing value. So in order to try to gain the same amount of purchasing power for their oil, because we're now paying them in depreciating paper, they had to adjust the price of oil up so that they would be compensated the same purchasing power. So we were trying to screw OPEC. OPEC wasn't trying to screw us. And so the same thing is going to happen. And if Trump is upset at the price of oil now, Wait till we see how much higher it's going to be when this dollar bubble pops and this bear market rally runs its course and we start to see a big drop in the dollar. Because, of course, as weak as the dollar was going to be before the tax cuts and before the spending increases, I'm not, you know, I'm not just against the tax cuts. I'm against the fact that the government increased spending on the military, increased spending on welfare. So they made government bigger and more expensive but they reduce the revenue to finance it. So that means that to bridge that gap, we have to borrow more money, which means the Fed ultimately is gonna have to monetize more debt. So they're gonna create more inflation. They're gonna debase the dollar in order to finance the government, which is gonna mean prices are gonna to have to go up. So if Trump eventually wants to know why oil prices are going up, don't look at OPEC, look in the mirror. Yeah, well, I think you gotta to add to that too. The Fed, outside the monetization and the crisis you talk about, Right now, they're doing the opposite. They're actually taking these securities and trying to get them to clear in the market. You argued that they're artificially sitting rates. And what we're doing right now is by letting the balance sheet run off, they, one, have to be financed. They got to be financed regardless because you got to roll the paper. But now they got to clear at a different rate. So you talked about artificially manipulating the rates or, or creating an artificial rate. Where do you think the interest rate environment, what it, should it look like today? Well, rates should obviously be a lot higher. I mean, clearly... The rates that we have now make no sense, right? I mean, historically, rates have never been this low. You don't believe in negative yielding bonds? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, obviously, nobody intending to hold to maturity is going to accept a negative yield. So the only people who are buying negative yields, other than central banks who couldn't give a damn because they don't care what they lose. But if an individual private investor is buying a bond with a negative yield, he's not going to hold it to maturity. He's only buying it because he thinks there's a greater fool out there who will buy it from him at an even higher negative yield before the music stops. So this is all part of the central bank's intention or attempts to try to delay the inevitable. And so far, they've, you know, they've done a pretty good job of kicking a can down the road, but they can't do it indefinitely. And all this talk, you mentioned about, oh, the Fed is going to allow its balance sheet to run down. Look, this is all a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of talk. If you go back to the very first congressional hearing with Ben Bernanke, right? And this is probably 2009, 2010. And he was asked point blank by senators or a congressman, I forget, you know, which one. 
Somebody called him out and basically said, you are monetizing the debt, which is exactly what he was doing, right? This is terrible. You're mon- and the Republicans for a while, some of them anyway, you know, were calling out the Fed for what they were doing. Said, you're monetizing the debt, right? This is like what banana republics do. This is not good. And Bernanke basically lied. And I called him out for lying at the time because he said, we are not monetizing the debt. How dare you accuse us of doing what we're doing? He said, this is just temporary. We are not buying these bonds permanently. We are going to buy them only because there's an emergency. And when the emergency is over, we are going to sell them back into the market. So this is just a stopgap measure. We're not really monetizing the debt. And that was when it was only $700 billion. Yeah, yeah. So here we are, you know, trillions of dollars later. They have not sold any of those bonds. So he was outright lying. But not only that, I mean, they weren't even... When they got interest on the bonds, they would roll that into more bonds, Right. right? So they were just... It's pure monetization. But this is what has kept it all from hitting the fan. And this is the crisis that's coming. And this is why, you know, the people listening to this podcast, they need to be invested correctly for this, because this is what's going to happen. So the reason that the dollar stopped falling, right, because when the Fed initially launched QE1, QE2, if you remember, the dollar had a huge rally, right? Going into the 2008 crisis, the dollar was at an all-time record low. Dollar index was down at 70. Oil was $140 a barrel. Gold was 1,000. It had gone from under 300 to 1,000. So we had this huge bear market in the dollar. It had been going down for years. Emerging markets were on fire. And the U.S. market was recovering. It still you know, really wasn't back up to its 2000, 2001 peak. Certainly the NASDAQ wasn't anywhere close to that peak. But the housing bubble was in full bubble. And then everybody got caught by surprise. Right. Because, you know, they shouldn't have been surprised. Had they been listening to me, they wouldn't have been surprised, but they were completely surprised. And so when they were, everybody just covered their positions. Everybody went to cash. People got margin calls. People were scared. So since everybody was short the dollar, they had to buy their dollars back. And the crisis, our sovereign, our crisis, our mortgage crisis spread around the world. We have been spreading our mortgages all over the world, been selling them everywhere. Everybody was stretching for yield because the Fed had interest rates so low, people were taking whatever risk they could to eke out some more yield. And so the world was buying our mortgages. And remember, we were running record trade deficits. In fact, the all-time record high trade deficit is still 2008. Now, if you take out oil, we're actually running bigger deficits than we were then because we now have more production of oil. But ex-oil, they're actually bigger. But they were record high trade deficits. So that meant that we were importing record amounts of foreign goods and paying for them with dollars, paper dollars. And now what were our trading partners doing with those dollars? Treasuries had such low yields. So they were buying mortgages. So these bad mortgages were everywhere. So all of a but sudden- they were AAA. Yeah. <laughs> they had the good housekeeping yeah. seal of approval. Yeah, just like uh, US Treasuries are AAA. So the crisis- this created a, a crisis worldwide and, and, and people were trying to get dollars to pay off debt and there was a run on everything. And so the dollar rat rose. Gold pulled back from 1,000 to under 700, right? But then, and, and oh, first, and plus nobody knew what the Fed was going to do. You didn't know if banks were going to fail. Nobody knew for sure that there were any bailouts coming. The government might have done the right thing. They might have actually let banks fail and let investors lose money, right? Perish the thought, actually allow a capitalism to function so that it's not, you know, heads you win, tails somebody else loses. You bet right, you win. You bet wrong, you lose, right? That's how it should be. You need to be held accountable 
for taking risk. Otherwise, everybody will just take an excessive amount of risk. So that was a good opportunity for the government to do the right thing. But of course, politically, they'll never do the right thing. But for a while, there was uncertainty. You didn't know. But once the Fed showed its cards and it was, hey, interest rates are going to zero, we're doing QE, people realize that nothing's going to fail. They're not letting any of these banks fail. They're not like any bonds default. And so then the dollar started to fall, right? Started to fall, big drop. Gold took off. Gold made new highs. It got to 1900. Was that 2012? 2011. Right. And oil started to go back up. I mean, oil had crashed down from 140 down to like 30, 40 bucks. It got back above 100, right? But then all of a sudden, after QE2 had started, I think even before QE3, all of a sudden, the Fed started taking credit for how successful the program was. And people started buying into it. And then all of a sudden, people were worried about Europe. Because all of a sudden, you know, Europe started having problems. Or, and all of a sudden, the focus was off the U.S. And the dollar stopped falling, started to rise slowly. Gold peaked out, right? Everybody all of a sudden, you know, and it was a, a sharp drop. And then the Fed started talking about, oh, we're going to start, we're going to taper QE. Oh, and then we're going to normalize interest rates. And then we're going to shrink our balance sheet. And all this is going to be great. And the market started pricing in all this stuff. A successful end to QE, a successful normalizing rates, as if everything was fine. And the market started to give the dollar the benefit of the doubt that the Fed was actually going to follow through with all this. Now, here's what's going to happen. And this is something that people should have figured out a long time ago, but, but they just didn't do it. That all that's a bunch of nonsense that the U.S. economy today is in much worse shape than it was before the 08 crisis. The bubble is bigger. The problems are bigger. All we did is reflate the bubble. One of the things that I got wrong when I was writing my book, Crash Proof, uh, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse, and I wrote that book in 05 and 06, and it came out in early 07. And when I wrote the book, I, I wrote that the Fed had inflated this gigantic housing bubble. And I explained how and why. And I said, when this bubble bursts and housing prices drop, and I said 20, 30% drop, I said, you know, we're going to see a financial crisis. We're going to see banks fail. Fannie and Freddie are going to go under. I said, we're going to have the worst recession since the Great Depression. We'd have trillion dollar deficits, 10% unemployment, all the stuff that I said was going to happen. But then the crash that I saw coming was not that, right? I said that we can survive that disease. It was the government cure that I thought would be lethal. So I said what the government was going to do was they were going to slash interest rates, print a bunch of money. I didn't write the word quantitative easing because I, I didn't know what they were going to call it. I just knew what they were going to do. And then I, I said that they were going to try to reflate the bubbles in stocks and real estate. And that in the process, they would kill the dollar and that would cause a, you know, a sovereign crisis, a bond crisis, a currency crisis. That hasn't happened yet because they didn't just attempt to reflate the bubbles. They actually succeeded. I didn't know that back then. I didn't know in 2005 that they would be able to inflate a bigger bubble than the one that I saw bursting. I thought the market would be smart enough to figure it out. Well, I was wrong. Right? I overestimated the intelligence. But the market is going to figure this out. So here's what's going to happen. When this next recession starts, and I think we'd already be there had Hillary won, but Trump won, so we probably had enough false optimism to delay the inevitable for another couple of years. But when this next recession starts, and this is going to be a doozy, it's going to be worse than the, the Great Recession. So they're going to have to come up with a new name for that one, right? because this one's going to be greater. But when the Fed is back at zero, 
having never normalized rates because you know, maybe they got up to two and a half. I don't know where they got to, but they never got to normal. And when they have to do another round of Q quantitative easing, when they're doing QE4, because they never actually were able to shrink their balance sheet by any significant amount, which is impossible anyway. But when the Fed is back to its old tricks and does QE4, now, is the market going to be dumb enough or the participants going to be dumb enough to believe that after this is finished, then they're going to normalize? Oh, we couldn't do it last time. But trust us, after this recession is over, we're finally going to normalize rates. And I know we couldn't shrink a $4.5 trillion balance sheet, but trust us, we'll shrink an $8 billion trillion balance sheet or we'll shrink a $10 trillion balance sheet. At that point, people will know what they should have known from day one, which is what I said the minute they launched QE. I said, this is never going to end. This is like, you know, going to be like Rocky movies, right? We're going to have more QEs because I knew once they went down that route, right? When, you know, you can never stop because the more debt you encourage people to take on by keeping interest rates cheap, the more impossible it is to normalize rates once you have that amount of debt. I mean, look at how much debt the federal government has now. $21 trillion and counting finance mainly with T-bills. I mean, how could they possibly handle normalized interest rates? And, you know, you it is amazing, though, because the curve is so flat these days. And the difference between issuing a one-year T-bill and a 30-year bond is like 60 basis yeah. points. Look it's at so the difference between a 10-year and a 30-year, like 10 or 15. I mean, you got to be, look, nobody is, again, I said nobody is buying that. And you asked me earlier, how do I know rates are too low? Look at the United States. We have... No savings. We have record low savings rate. I mean, the average American, what, there was just a survey not too long ago where if you had to come up with four or 500 bucks, like 40% of Americans don't have that. So if you have no savings, what does that mean about interest rates? They're going to be high. Interest rates are the price of borrowing money and the price is set by supply and demand. Supply is the savings. Demand is the amount of debt. We've got record amounts of debt. Government debt is a record. Individuals with student loans, auto loans, credit card debt, corporate debt is off the charts. So we have all this debt, nobody's saving. Interest rates need to be high. They should be historically high to encourage more people to save, discourage people from borrowing. You know, Donald Trump is making a big deal about the trade deficit, right? He wants to fix it with tariffs. It's not going to work, right? You, don't, you can't cure cancer with a Band-Aid by covering up, you know, maybe some of the blemishes on your skin, the reason we have a trade deficit is not because other nations don't play fair and our idiot politicians were out negotiated. I mean, we have idiot politicians, but so does every other country, right? We don't have a monopoly on, on dumb, dumb bureaucrats. <laughs> I think that'll be the close of the podcast thus <laughs> yeah, far. The reason we have trade deficits is because of the Fed because and, and because of government. I'm not, I'm not going to let Congress off the hook, but how do you produce stuff? You need capital equipment. You need machines. Where does capital investment come from? It comes from savings. Why is nobody saving? Because interest rates are too low. We're encouraging everybody to consume. So where are people getting all this money that they're using to buy all these products made in China? We're creating it out of thin air. We're enabling everybody to go into debt to buy more imported products. I mean, where does Trump think Americans are going to spend those tax cuts? They're going to spend, they're going to go to Walmart, and they're going to buy stuff made in China. I mean, because that's where all the stuff is made. And the fact that he expects Americans, Trump expects the Chinese to buy American stuff. What stuff? The Americans won't even buy American stuff because it doesn't exist, 
right? We don't have the capital. We haven't made the investment because interest rates have been too low. And of course, we have too high taxes. We have too much regulation. That's what Trump should be doing. If he wants us to export more, then we need to produce more and save more. And so the government has to get out of the way and make that happen. What he doesn't understand and what very few people understand is in the short run, it's the world that is suffering. They're the losers. They give us their real products. The Chinese work hard. They take land, labor, and capital, scarce economic resources that they could be devoting to satisfying their own needs and desires. And instead, they utilize these resources to make consumer goods for Americans that make our lives better. And what do we give them? A little piece of paper that we create out of thin air. In fact, we don't even give them the paper, right? We just create it on a, on a digital money at, you know, in a computer. They can't even burn it. In case you know, or use it for toilet paper in an emergency. They got nothing. So is that is that why you're so negative on the crypto? There's no toilet paper component. But the point is, so we get something, they get nothing. Our standard of living is being artificially enhanced by these trade deficits. And Americans forget too. We get two benefits. Of course, long term, this is a disaster. But short run, right? And politicians need to understand this because they have to prepare the electorate for the short term sacrifice of lowering our trade deficit. It's not like a panacea. Because we have these trade deficits, because we've conned the world into giving us real consumer goods for nothing, we have more abundant supply of goods. So we have a lot of goods on the shelves that otherwise wouldn't be there. So we have more abundance, more supply. So consumer prices are lower than they would be without the trade deficits. Plus, since our trading partners have nothing to buy with their dollars, other than maybe OPEX oil, but since we're not making anything that anybody else wants to buy in general, they take those dollars and buy financial assets in the United States, whether they buy stocks, whether they buy bonds, corporate bonds, government bonds. So interest rates are lower for Americans and the stock market is higher as a result of these trade deficits. If we weren't exporting so many of our IOUs to buy trinkets, those IOUs wouldn't be flowing back to buy our financial assets. So if we were to lower the trade deficits, we'd have higher consumer prices and lower stock prices and higher interest rates. Now, all that is good. That should happen. But none of that is what Trump is expecting. And none of that is what the voters are expecting. Right. But that's it's more of a talking point than anything, because it sounds good to say it's unfair. Look at this deficit. Look at what they've taken away from you. But in reality, what you're saying is look at what they've given us, actually. Right. So it sounds to me that the tariffs you would view as extremely negative for the U.S. economy. Yeah, look, tariffs are bad. Right. I mean, although Governments. Need I threw to raise. the word extremely in yeah, there. Yeah. I know. I think we all agree that it's well, not. not I healthy. mean, governments need to raise revenue somehow. That's the problem with government. You got to pay for it, right? But that's why you want to keep government as small as possible, so that you you have to pay as little as possible. See, this idea that you can just cut taxes is not true. You can't you can't cut taxes unless you make government smaller. Otherwise, you're just diluting yourself. These tax cuts that Trump gave us are just a down payment on future tax hikes. But if you look at when America ran on tariffs, and Trump has even pointed this out. The federal government ran primarily on tariffs before the income tax. That was their revenue raiser. And if the government is just going to raise money, I would prefer they have tariffs rather than an income tax. It's more but, of a consumption tax than income tax. Of course. Right? But this is how the politicians conned the American voters into accepting the income tax. So they told the voters, and there was a big populist movement you know, around the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, right? Populist fever. And so the politicians of the day said, we need an income tax so we can get rid of the tariffs. See, the tariffs are paid by the average working American. And we just want to tax the rich with this income tax. 
And so that was the basis upon which the income tax was sold to the public. It was, hey, we can get rid of the tariffs. But wasn't it supposed to be temporary as well? It was temporary. Well, it had like very high no, the, marginal rates. The income tax wasn't going to be temporary, but it was only going to affect the super rich. I mean, even the doctors and lawyers that were around during that weren't going to pay the income tax. It really was for the titans, right? The robber barons. I mean, you really had to be rich. And then it's it was, you know, I think the top bracket was like 4% or something, 6% maybe. It started at 1% or 2%. In fact, they were talking about making a limit of 10%, and they objected because they said, well, if we put a limit of 10%, they'll raise it to 10%. Well, <laughs> they should have put the limit in, but it was supposed to be just for the wealthy. What was temporary was the withholding tax because that the, the withholding tax didn't come in until 1943, and that was to support the uh, the Second World War. So people thought that was temporary, but of course there's no such thing as a temporary tax. I mean, they're all permanent the minute, the minute, they, the minute they come in, but at least the public knew back then that average people paid tariffs and rich people were gonna pay the income tax. Now where the public of course got screwed is now the income tax affects people, average middle-class people to a much greater degree than tariffs ever did. So once the government got the camel's nose under the income tax tent, it didn't take long before they taxed everybody. But today, to just add the tariffs back while the income tax is still here, just adds insult to injury. But the public needs to know the taxes are not on the Chinese. They're, they're on Americans. When the newspaper says Trump is imposing $200 billion of tariffs or on China, China's not paying anything. It's the Americans who want to buy the Chinese goods that have to pay the tax. So, you know, a trade war is about which government is prepared to sacrifice as many of its own troops, right? Because all the guns are turned internally. You're shooting your own citizens because you're saying, you're going to pay this tariff. And it's like, oh, okay, well, if you do that to your citizens, then we're going to do the same thing to our citizens, right? The best thing to do, if another country is dumb enough to hurt their own citizens, you don't, you don't do the same thing. It's like, you know, your mother says, if your friend jumps off a bridge, that doesn't mean you jump off the bridge too, but everybody wants to jump off that bridge because politically, right? It sounds good. Just like Trump, Trump wants us to blame our economic problems on the Mexicans. Oh, they're stealing our jobs. So let's build a wall. That's not why the jobs are disappearing. It's not about the Mexicans and our trade deficits aren't here because the Chinese are cheating us. We have caused these problems ourselves and we could fix them ourselves, but not with the policies we have now, but it also requires leveling with the electorate and telling them a lot of truths that a lot of people don't want to hear. And nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news because nobody wants to be the messenger who gets shot. And when it comes to election, being shot means, you know, you don't win. I saw that, too, with the rise of the Tea Party post-financial crisis. And some of the key leaders were in there railing against, you know, these huge deficits, you know, everybody wanting free stuff, and then turn around and voted for it. Right, yeah. voted for the tax cuts to both corporate America. And Where's the Tea Party now? Right. I mean, if Obama was doing what Trump was doing, I mean, the Tea Party would be all over them for the huge deficits. Can you imagine if Obama was put on these tariffs? You think all these Republicans would be lining up in favor of these tariffs if Obama was doing it, or Hillary had said, "I have a new plan. We're going to have all these. That this is terrible. This is anti-free trade. These are tax increases." Right? No, announced to it. Nobody wants to be critical. And I said, that is the dynamite that people don't know they've got because everybody is so excited because they think the country has moved right. They think we've moved more towards less government, fewer regulations, lower taxes. That is not the read on the 2016 election. And I was one of the few guys that was out there saying Trump could win when nobody was willing to say that, that he could win this thing. But the reason that Trump won was because as a candidate, he was honest. 
He was honest with the electorate about how lousy the economy was and the fact that they were being lied to by the government, by Wall Street, by the media about the phony recovery. He said, there is no recovery and you know it. This un these unemployment statistics are fraud. They're lies. They're fakes. The real unemployment rate is 20% or 30%. Forget about that 4 or 5% that they're asking you to swallow. Oh, and the stock market, who cares? That's a gigantic bubble. And the economy is a disaster because it's been run by career politicians who have been selling you down the river. What you need is to send me there, a businessman with no political agenda, no political experience. I'm going to clean house. I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm going to kick some butt in Washington. And I'm going to make America great again. And people gravitated to that message of change because he never asked anybody to make a sacrifice. He didn't talk about having to cut entitlements, having to cut government spending. He didn't say that any government workers were going to have to lose their overpriced, overpaid jobs or accept pen cuts to these underfunded pensions. So he didn't level. He didn't talk about the pain. He just, hey, I'm going to make it better and it's not going to cost anybody anything. And I think people who were frustrated living in this Obama economy and people who voted Obama because he promised change and didn't deliver that, I think he tapped into that vein and got a lot of these voters. But those voters are not going to be there to vote for him again in 2020 when he has not delivered on the promise, when their wages are just as low, if not lower, because the inflation rate has picked up. And so their real standard of living has gone down. They have the same crappy job. And even if they got a slight raise, it hasn't kept pace with the increase in the cost of living. And so people are going to be disillusioned. And I think they're going to be very subjective to another false prophet, another messiah coming from the left this time saying, OK, Trump couldn't make America great again, but I can with socialism. And I think that if you look at the popularity of Bernie Sanders in that party, where in the past you couldn't really do well in a Democrat if you admitted to being a socialist. I mean, they're all pretty much socialists, but nobody wants to admit it. They want to bury that as deep as they can. But all of a sudden, Bernie Sanders made it fashionable to be a socialist. Now it's very acceptable. It's in vogue. It's trendy. Oh, I'm a democratic socialist, right? As if they changed the meaning of socialism by prefacing it with the word democracy. I mean, who cares if we vote for socialism? The fact of the matter is we end up with socialism, so we're in the same spot. But I think by making that palatable and by the entire Democratic Party moving left, and when this recession and when people go to the bowls in 2020, and if we are knee deep in another great recession and the voters are disillusioned, because remember, Trump took ownership of this bubble, big mistake. He took ownership of the economy. He's told everybody that he's made America great again. That's just the new slogans. We keep America great. I've solved all the problems. It was a disaster. The economy was a disaster before I was elected. And even though it's basically the same now, now it's the greatest economy in the history of the country. So we went from complete economic wasteland to the greatest economy in the history of the country in a year. But he believes it. There's well, no doubt. <laughs> or at least he, he stays on point with the messaging. There's yeah, no well, doubt about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's all fake. Just like he's got Linda McMahon and, he, you know, in his cabinet. It's like wrestling. It's all, you know, just get people to believe it. Right. Well, I think but, it's it's the thing that the, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. And so... When you're pounded this, it's the epitome of brainwashing, right? So if you can control your message, I think that's what the president has done well, is he took over the messaging and just said, look, instead of being negative on it, let's look positive. It's the same data set. I agree with you. Right. Our, our I, GDP grows exactly the same. Perhaps we have a little more inflation as measured by the government. I know you're, yeah. you're skeptical of government calculations. I want to talk about that as well. But the thing is, is that 
everything you were emphasizing is exactly what could blow up in his face. Well, and if the fact is, if we do have that recession in the next couple of years, which you know a lot of signals are saying that's probably when it happens with the deficits and just the lack of growth being generated in the capex and the spending. I don't think he stands a chance. Yeah, I mean, he should have prepared the public for an earlier recession, blamed right. it squarely on yeah. Obama. Look, we this is what we've got to do. We've got to correct these problems. And there's going to be some pain here, but there's going to be some reward at the end of it. Right. The best thing would have had the recession in 2017. Then you just look, point the finger and then right. you can move on. Right. You're right. And he, and he could have said, look, I want to cut taxes, but we can't. Because we're broke. We have massive deficits. we got to cut government spending. We can't have a sugar high. I can't give corporations a big tax cut. That's not what we vote for. We we vote for free stuff. We want something that benefits me, yes. right? But it's going to backfire because in 2020, Trump is not going to say that vote for me and I'll make your life better if he's already been there for four years and their lives are worse. The public is still going to be looking for a savior, a way out. And Trump is not going to be able to out-promise a socialist, right? When it comes to who can give you more free stuff, right? As much as the Republicans want to try, right? Socialist has an advantage there, And if you look at how dumbed down the American electorate is, and, you know, when you look at the employment numbers, right, we have this low unemployment rate, mainly because so many people are not in the labor force, but they still can vote, right? So you got all these people that are not counted as being unemployed. And of course, even in the U6 number, which is less dishonest than the regular number, because that includes people that are working part-time but really want full-time jobs. And it includes the people who are discouraged. But it only includes the people who have been discouraged for a year or less. So once you've been out of the workforce and discouraged for more than a year, you don't even get counted in that statistic. So you're gone. But, you know, obviously, if you look at the work-to-population numbers or labor force participation rate, you see this mass exodus from the labor force because so many Americans are unqualified to do anything and have no even, they have no belief that there's a job out there, so they don't even bother to look. They can all go to the polls. They can all vote. You don't need a job to vote, right? So all those people are gonna come out and vote for the Democrat, vote for the socialist. And, And so when people are getting excited now about these tax cuts, they better realize that they could all be gone in 2021 because if the socialists get the White House, and Congress. What do you think they're going to do with corporate taxes? What are they going to do with the individual income tax? And especially since if they can maintain the narrative that everything was great, that Obama handed over a pristine economy to Trump, and Trump blew it all up by giving tax cuts to the rich, tax cuts to corporations, deregulating, right, appealing Obamacare, even though he didn't appeal it, he made it worse, but he's pretending as if it's gone, right? Healthcare costs are going to skyrocket, and now they can say, you see, Look what happened because of Trump. They didn't repeal it, but they tried. They, they took credit for doing it. And then the tariffs only make it easier. Now, that even gives the Fed an excuse. That gives the Federal Reserve. They can say, hey, everything was great. And then Trump decided to have a trade war. We never could have anticipated that. And he screwed up all of our good work. So, yeah, now we got to do more quantitative easing, but not because it didn't work, but because, you know, we had this ridiculous trade war. But all these things are going to come. It's going to be a perfect narrative for the left to run on. But when they get there, now, okay, the tax cuts caused the problem. The solution is tax hikes. We need more taxes, higher taxes on corporations, higher taxes on the rich. And that's going to help us pay for free education, free health care for everybody. You know, now that we don't, we now we need total socialized medicine. In fact, we need the government to guarantee everybody a job. I mean, we're really going to make a hard turn left. In fact, I've been talking about 
Well, didn't Bernie say it was not only just a guaranteed job, but it's guaranteed at $15 an hour? Plus benefits, vacations, health care. I mean, shoot, sign me up, right? Everybody's going to want to work for the government. But of course, when everybody works for the government, nobody has anything, right? Everybody in the Soviet Union had a government job, but you waited eight hours in line for a loaf of bread, right? Because you need the free market to organize labor and decide, you know, what gets done by whom and and set compensation. Well, the money but, velocity on a government job is very low for the <laughs> fact that you have to actually create the money to create the job to spend yeah. it, right? But it all sounds good. And when the economy is a mess and everybody's going to blame capitalism, I mean, that's, you know, people blame capitalism for the financial crisis. I mean, that was one of the things that I was trying to get out there, right? Because, you know, when they had the 2008 financial crisis, Early on, remember those congressional hearings trying to figure out why there was a crisis? I called everybody to get, I wanted to testify. Because I was like, ask me. Like I'm like the kid in school with his hand up. Oh, be me. I know, I know, I know, right? Because I was writing about it for years. But they wouldn't let me testify, right? Everybody who testified was clueless that the financial crisis was coming. So why ask them? Why not ask the guy that wrote a book about it, that lectured about it, that was writing articles about it for years and sending them to hundreds of newspapers, you know, hoping they would publish it. But the reason they didn't want me there is because they had already decided the conclusion and they were just trying to put the people there to validate that, which was that we had a crisis because of too much capitalism. We didn't have enough government oversight. We didn't have enough government regulation, even though the source of the problem was government interference in the free market. The free market would have prevented the crisis, but government interference is what enabled it and caused it and exacerbated it. But, you know, I have been able to just testify. I've testified in Congress actually twice since then. And you can see them on YouTube if you want to. They're actually, they're quite entertaining. I called one of them, Mr. Schiff goes to Washington. And the other one is Mr. Schiff returns to Washington. And the first one, after I testified the first time, I didn't think they'd ever invite me back. I mean, you, you look at it. And then they did invite me back a second time. And then the guy who invited me back got fired because he brought me back. But the second time, I was actually testifying against the government. Wait, hold on a second. Note, Sam, we should not have him back on the podcast if, that, if, if, if bringing him back gets fired. Yeah. Well, you're not, you don't work for the government. But the second time I testified, it was about the government wanted to extend loan guarantees through Fannie and Fetty to multifamily homes from single family. And I was like the only guy against it. Everybody else represented the builders that, of course, they wanted guarantees so they can, you know, sell more overpriced homes to people that can't afford them. But I was there saying, this is a mistake. And of course, they ignored me and did it anyway. Now, of course, we have a huge liability now because of multifamily loans that are now backed by the U.S. government. I mean, that defeats the whole purpose. Supposedly, the government was there to help make home ownership more affordable. Well, now they need to help speculators build multifamily units. I mean, how, what is the, how is that the mission? No, that's just the American dream part <laughs> two, right? That's just part two, right? Yeah. And of course, the other irony of the FHA and all the government programs like Fannie and Freddie, their original goal was to keep homes affordable so that people could buy them. Their current goal is to keep home prices high so that banks' balance sheets aren't affected because the goal of Fannie and Freddie is to prevent real estate prices from falling. All their policies, right, guaranteeing loans with low or no down payments, guaranteeing low interest rates for loan, it's all meant to keep uh, real estate prices higher. Because if Fannie and Freddie backed away, right, if there were no more government guarantees, real estate prices would have to fall to the point where people could actually afford them without government help, right? They would have to fall to the point where they can afford a 20% down payment, which would be a big drop, right? But lower real estate prices would make homes more affordable to a lot of people. People can't buy homes because the prices are too high. 
So if they just let the price go down, but no, what the government wants to do is keep the prices high, but just help people take on more and more debt. You can almost say the same thing about education then as well, right? With uh, student loans, student lending. Yeah, I mean, that's where the government has done the most amount of damage. And, you know, when you see the left, you know, when they they demagogue against all these kids that have all this student debt. Well, that's because of the government. Why do you think they have that debt? Without the government, none of this debt would exist. I mean, first, the government subsidized private loans. So they went to a bank and they said, hey, you loan money to this student. And if they don't pay you back, the taxpayer will. Oh, fine. We'll make as many loans as we can. That's like risk-free lending. And and who benefits from that? The banks, because they make a bunch of money. But who else benefited? The colleges, the universities. Because now they know there's no longer a market discipline to prevent them from jacking up tuition. Because as high as they want to make it, the students just go to the banks and borrow the money because the banks will lend as much as they can because it's a guaranteed return. Well, it's a cabal because they all do it together as well, right? Yes. And so here's the irony of it. Here's where the politicians benefit. The higher tuition rises because of government guaranteed loans, the more students need the loans to go to college. Because now the people who could afford to go without the government help, now they need loans. And now they can, now the politicians can go to the students and say, vote for me because I'm the one that's making sure you get loans so you can afford to go to college, right? Where it's like the government breaks your leg and says, vote for me because I'm the one that's giving you a crutch. Well, if you didn't break my leg, I wouldn't need your crutch. If you go back to what college used to cost before the government started subsidizing it by guaranteeing the student loans, college was cheap. My father worked his way through UConn waiting tables over the summer. His parents had no money. My grandfather was a carpenter, right? He came to this country as an immigrant, didn't even speak English, and he came here when he was a teenager. You know, there's no welfare back then, no minimum wage, no nothing. But, you know, he got married, had, he had eight kids, typical middle class, you know, lower middle class family, but didn't have money to send my dad to college. So my dad, like all of his other friends, worked his way through college and graduated with no debt. You know, no big deal. Everybody did that. Nobody had debt when they got out of college. Government created all of this. And now Barack Obama made it even worse because now instead of guaranteeing private loans, the government is just directly lending. Now the biggest asset the U.S. government has is student loans. The students are in hock to to the government. And, you know, of course, you know, they're ultimately going to forgive the loans, right? I mean, that's what they're going to do. But that's going to be an even bigger moral hazard. Because can you imagine how much the colleges are going to charge kids for tuition when they can say, don't worry about the loans. This is going to get forgiven anyway. Because actually, if you're going to do that, the only way you can really forgive all the loans to the existing students is if you make college free going forward for everybody so they don't need loans. But of course, whenever the government makes something free, that's when it really gets expensive. Yeah, well, that's a lot to digest. So taking back to when you wrote your book in 05 and 06 and you got it published in, in 07, it doesn't seem like your thinking has changed too much. Maybe you have a more anecdotes, you have more data points, but it really is the same setup according to how you've laid out the world today. Yeah, look, I the crash that I wrote about in my first book hasn't happened yet. And I wrote my most recent book, The Real Crash, right, was to explain that. Because a lot of people, when I they would meet me and they would say, gee, you know, you got that right. You called the crash. And I said, well, not really, because the crash that I called hasn't happened yet. I did predict the 2008 crisis, but as the catalyst for the crash. What I actually thought was going to happen has not happened. And I don't think I'm wrong. I just think that it's taking a lot longer than I thought back then, even though I never put a time on it. I did not know. I did not think it would be this long. And so a lot of people think that because 
those really bad things haven't happened yet. That makes me wrong. But I'm not wrong. I don't think I'm any more wrong than I was in 2004, 2005, 2006, when I was talking about the housing bubble and what was going to happen when it popped, because it got bigger and bigger and bigger. It, that didn't mean I was wrong. Just because I warned about it in 04, that didn't mean it was wrong because we didn't have a crisis in 05 or 06. The crisis didn't come until 07, 08, but that didn't make me wrong. And this is a bigger bubble than that one. And so maybe it's going to go on longer before it pops and does even more damage. But the fact that I am warning about it early, you know, doesn't invalidate what I'm saying. But, you know, from the perspective of a lot of like, let's say the media, you go back to 2004, five, six, seven timeframe. I was on mainstream financial news on a weekly basis. There probably wasn't a week that went by. I was either on Bloomberg I was on CNBC. When Fox Business started, I was on that. I was on CNN. And then I even did, you know, some you know other shows that weren't even financial. I was coming on, but I was on regularly. And I was getting called, you know, all the time. I was getting quoted in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, you know, Time Magazine would call me up and do a story. Sometimes, you know, big take, they'd send photographers out to my house, to take pictures of me, you know, warning about the collapse, you know. So, they at least gave me a, you know, a voice. They listened to my perspective, even if it was just to make fun of me and laugh at me. They at least, you know, took me out so they can make fun of me. But the last few years, nobody will have me on. So it's almost like they said, you know what, this guy can't possibly be right. I mean, back then we thought, oh, yeah, he's probably wrong, but all right, let's be fair and balanced and let's put the other side. But now it's like, I forget, it's impossible. This is all nonsense, right? He's been saying this for so long that it would be a disservice to, to our viewers to even allow him to come on our network and say something negative about the U.S. economy or about the stock market because he can't pop as if, you know, they'll never tire of people coming on being optimistic, right? Oh, yeah, like, you know, you could be you could be bullish all you want. And of course, all the people that were completely wrong in 2006, 2007 that laughed at me and made fun of me, they're still on by and large. I mean, some of them did other things to get thrown off the air. You know, maybe they groped women or something. Because I know there's still a few guys that had some kind of scandals that is the reason that they're no longer on. Or they they started writing a pump and dump newsletter or something. But I didn't do anything. I just been the same consistent message, calling out the Fed for its mistakes and the politicians and calling out the bubbles as I see them. And all of a sudden, I'm persona non grata all over the mainstream media, which to me is just more evidence the fact that I'm right and that, you know, you have so many people that don't even want to consider the possibility. Like, look at the stress tests that the Fed just put the banks through. And they're making a big deal about the fact that the banks passed these stress tests, which, of course, duh. I mean, the government came up with a stress test. Like, they're going to come up with a test that anybody's going to fail, right? I mean, it's like asking your kid to well, grade. Well, a couple of them did, but they're not grade. U.S. entities. But yes. Yeah, it's like asking your kid to grade his own report card. Oh, he's got all A's. What do you know? What a shocker. But if you actually look at the assumptions that they made, right? Remember, this is supposed to be the worst economy they can they can come up with, right? Because they, they preface their scenarios by saying, we don't expect this, right? So don't think that we actually, this is not our forecast, but just in case, right? So- the, they have two, they have an adverse case and then they have like an extremely adverse case. So in the adverse case, we go through a recession and they go back to zero in rates and the long bond goes down. The 10-year treasury goes down to less than 1%. I think 75 bips is where they got it. And unemployment comes up a little bit, maybe I think 7%. And the stock market maybe comes down 
25%, I forget the exact numbers, but that's their like adverse scenario. And inflation comes down. The extremely adverse scenario is where yields on the long bond don't fall. They stay where they are because of an inversion to sovereign credit. So the yield on the 10-year stays at three or thereabouts. And inflation still comes down. Doesn't go up, it still goes down, but not as low as, you know, but, but still below two. And as a result of that, as a result of yield staying the same, and the Fed still takes rates to one, to zero. So the yield curve is steeper, but rates are still at zero. In that environment, I think they got a 65% drop in the stock market, 10% unemployment, right? <clears throat> this is this major thing. But there is not a scenario for stagflation. There is not a scenario where they said, hey, what would happen if interest rates went way up? With all this debt, you would think they would want to stress test. What if interest rates go to 8% or 10%? I mean, they don't think the other scenario is going to happen. So not thinking it's going to happen isn't an excuse for not testing it just in case. That's the idea, right? Worst case, what if the next recession happens at the same time as elevated inflation so the Fed can't lower interest rates? What if they have to raise interest rates to fight inflation even though we're in a recession? Hey, what if the government is forced in the next recession to raise taxes? Because the deficit is exploding because of higher interest rates. So the cost of servicing the debt is going to the roof. What if we have to have uh, contractionary fiscal policy and monetary policy during the recession? See, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, right? Murphy's law is anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So what's the deficit have to look like in that scenario? (laughs) I mean, mean, is it the Fed's balance sheet? Is that what an annual deficit would look like at that point? If we go through a stagflation like we had in the 1970s. And I went over earlier in the podcast, the inflation we had in the 1970s was a result of the deficits of the 1960s, right? It was the monetary excesses of the 60s that gave us the inflation of the 70s. Because there's a lag. too long, low, yeah. too long, plus in deficit with the fiscal deficits. Right, right. so- the kind of gun, similar yeah. a little bit. What right? we've done under the Greenspan Fed, what we were doing under Bush and Obama and now under Trump, blows- away anything we did in the 60s. I mean, so the inflationary consequences are going to be much bigger, but it's happening at a time where fiscally we don't have the ability. I mean, the national debt in 1980 was financed with 30-year government bonds. And so when interest rates went up to 20%, which is where the market pushed them, right? It wasn't like Volcker just picked 20%. That's where the market found a balance in the short rate. But rates went up to 20%. That only impacted the new borrowing that the government had. But as rates go up now, it impacts the entire national debt. It has to be rolled over at the new rate. And, you know, individuals have a lot more debt now than we had then. I mean, back in 1980, we we are still the world's biggest creditor nation. You know, we weren't a debtor nation like we are now. You know, we had a much more vibrant economy. We produced a lot more of the stuff that we consumed, so we had better terms of trade. But uh, so we're much more vulnerable now. But if interest rates were to go up to, let's say, 10%, which is half of where they went, in 2000. And if the Fed stood back and let it happen, right, because inflation was going up and they, I mean, the government, practically speaking, the government would have to default on its bonds because the only way to avoid default would be to slash government spending every place else. I mean, the government would have to basically tell pensioners or people on social security, hey, we can't make these payments because we got to pay interest to the Chinese or to the Saudis or to the Russians. I mean, is that going to fly at the polls that we're going to prioritize our creditors over our own citizens who who need these uh, payments? So 
And then what would happen in a well, world? You just crank up the printing press. I mean, that's well, what you kind of have to well, do, right? Well, yes. You can pay them off. It's just the value of that dollar well, must appreciate. Right. But if we do that, see, that's the aha moment. That's the wild E. Coyote moment where our creditors wake up and say, wait a minute, right? It's QE infinity. This is inflation has taken off and the Fed is never going to be able to rein it in because they're powerless. They can never shrink this balance sheet. It's going to grow in perpetuity. The dollar is a bottomless pit. And then all of our creditors that are warehousing U.S. dollars, whether it's in the form of treasuries or corporate bonds or mortgages that they've been accumulating for decades for generating trade surplus with America, now it's like, I got to get out of these things. This is going to implode. And you have a currency crisis. And now you're looking at hyperinflation. And the only way to stop that is to do the unthinkable. Let interest rates go up. Let the chips fall where they may. Force the U.S. government into defaulting on its obligations. Let the risk-free rate blow up, right? It's not a sovereign. It's not a, a mortgage crisis. It's a sovereign debt crisis. And see, there's no bailout from that. The, the government was able to bail out the mortgage market by absorbing all that those toxic paper, buying it up, and replacing it with its own toxic paper, which people didn't realize was toxic. But when and a lot, it's, a lot more new toxic paper to be created yes. through the amount of leverage on. The but system. when it's the government, when nobody wants treasuries, when no one wants dollars, then there's no more bailouts. You're at the end of your rope. So that crisis is coming, and you know, and that is the big one. And that's why I've said earlier, people have to be prepared. Forget about this bubble in the U.S. stock market, U.S. bond market. Just fade the trade. You know, the reason that people made a lot of money shorting subprime was because so few people were on that side. Everybody was believed in the mortgage market because they were under the delusion that real estate prices could never fall. This is a, a bigger trade where more people are wrong. It's like if you go to a racetrack and let's say there's a 50 to 1 long shot. I mean, obviously, you bet that horse, you could get paid. If you bet the favorite, you can't make much. Now, normally, the long shots are a waste of money. But if the market is inefficient, if you know something that nobody else knows and you can bet that horse, there is your asymmetric bet. The most you can lose is your $2 bet or whatever, but you got 50 to 1. Right now, I've never seen a situation, that, in, and this includes 2007, even after the mortgage market blew up and everybody said, oh, don't worry about it. It was contained to subprime, right? I see all these warning signs that I had been warning about for years. All of a sudden they're flashing red, but the mainstream is oblivious because they have no idea what to look for. They just dismiss and rationalize these things. So I think right now you've got more people on the wrong side of this trade than I've ever seen. More people are expecting outcomes that are never going to happen. And that has created huge divergencies between commodity prices, gold prices, exchange rates, U.S. stocks versus emerging market stocks and different things. So if you put the right trades on now and just tune out all the noise, there is a huge payday coming at the end of this trade. And the fact that the, the central banks have been able to delay the day of reckoning as long as they have, that just means there's a lot more reckoning. It's a bigger bubble, a lot more air is coming out. That means a lot more wealth is going to be lost if you've been betting on the bubble. But that means a lot more is going to be gained if you've been betting against it. All right, we're getting short on time here. So let me get one pragmatic question in here is, how do people think about positioning portfolios to take advantage of this view here? So do you take a little piece of it and put it in this exogenous kind of tail risk idea? How do you recommend folks try to uh, monetize this view that uh, Mr. Schiff has? Yeah, well, look, a lot of it depends on to the degree that which you buy into it. Or do you think Yep, Peter Schiff is 100% right. I'm fully on board. Or you know what? I'm not sure, but I want to, maybe he's right. Let me just do something in case, or let me have let me have a hedge, right? Yep. Just in case he's right. 
But obviously, you know, if you've been in the bubble, right, if you have a bunch of U.S. stocks or U.S. bonds or U.S. dollars, clearly you could sell, right? You could take advantage of the fact that there are still buyers out there that don't get it, that don't completely think I'm wrong or never even heard of me and, you know, never even considered any of this, right? They're all brainwashed into the bubble. So you can take some chips off the table, take some some of your profits and take them away so that you can't lose them back to the casino. And then look at the assets that are undervalued. Like you go back to the last bubble that is not that just a housing bubble, but the last bubble in the 1990s. If you weren't short, right? Because obviously you made money shorting the dot-coms. But again, you didn't know when they were the bubble was going to pop. And maybe you would have been stopped out. Maybe you would have got a margin call or who knows, right? You never know, right? There's that, that old saying about the markets remaining irrational longer than you could remain solvent. But one of the ways that you could have profited in the 90s, other than shorting the bubble, was buying the assets that everybody was selling to raise cash to bet on the bubble, right? That's what I was doing. So I was buying a lot of oil stocks in the late 1990s, mining stocks, and other just basic foreign companies, utilities. I bought a lot of you know REITs and utilities and just basic old school stocks, like brick and mortar stuff that nobody wanted because all everybody wanted to be dot com and tech and new economy. All the old economy stuff was cheap. And then, of course, it becomes a self-perpetuating spiral because the managers who are sticking to this fundamental story keep losing assets to the guys that are chasing the fad because everybody invests in the rear view mirror. And, and so then, the, you know, the assets even get more. So the same thing now, look at the markets that are undervalued, look at the currencies that are undervalued. You know, what is everybody selling? Where is the source of funds so that more people can pile in to these stocks that are so overpriced or into the dollar? And so that's what I've been buying, right? I'm looking at markets that I think will be the safe havens of the future when people realize that the U.S. is not the safe haven, that they've jumped out of the frying pan into the fire if they've gone out of Europe or Japan and, and, and they've gone into the U.S. So I want to you know front run those trades. I want to be positioned in those equities. Uh, I want to be in the currencies that I think are going to gain the most value relative to the dollar. I think all currencies are going to lose value in terms of purchasing power, which is why you got to own gold. And obviously, if you want to make the biggest asymmetric back with the most upside. It's these gold stocks that can not just be up 10x, but some 50x. I mean, there could be some huge gains because nobody expects gold to go up. Everybody expects it to fall. And so if everybody is surprised by not only how much it goes, the fact that it goes up, by the degree to which it goes up, then you're going to see the gains are going to be enormous. So you get into the currencies that are going to lose on a relative base, right? If they're all going to lose purchasing power, they're all falling. If other currencies lose value more slowly than the dollar, even though they're all losing value, there's a lot of money to be made in those relationships. And you know, and I also think one of the things that are going to surprise people is what's driving the trade now is divergence of monetary policy, let's say between the ECB and the Fed, where everybody expects the Fed to be tightening and the ECB to be more easy. But what if what happens is the Fed is reversing course and easing just as the ECB is abandoning QE and tightening? But remember, They've got a 2% ceiling. We've got a target, which isn't even a target, because now they've said that, well, our target is symmetrical inflation around 2%. And so who the hell knows what that is? But all that is is negative five plus look, seven. Look, we're already at 2.9% trailing CPI, the way the government measures it. So we'll be above three relatively soon, and then we'll be at four. And remember, Nixon imposed raising price controls when we got to four. That's how bad we thought 4% was, and we had a much more honest CPI back in the 70s and than the, than the one we got now. But they got a ceiling. That's why whenever you hear Mario Draghi talk, 
He says we want inflation close to but under 2%. Because 2% is the ceiling. It's not a target. In fact, 1% is better than 1.9. But the way the central banks are operating now, they act as if we need prices to go up. Like somehow, if we have a lower cost of living, that that's a negative for an economy. That economies need the cost of living to go up every year by close to 2%. And if the cost of living is not going up, it's the job of the central bank to make sure that the things you need and the things that you, you want do cost you more money. I always like thought that. it was funny how they call it price stability. And price yeah. stability means that prices inherently go up. Well, <laughs> prices used to fall, right? If you go back to the 19th century, prices were always falling over time, which was a good thing, right? right? For because, the consumer, yeah, right? but not necessarily for the producer. No, right? no, it's great for the producer too, because what counts for the producer is the margin. The margin, right, right? right. So if your costs are falling and your prices are falling, and your margins are maintained, but even if your margins are shrinking, here's what happens. As you can bring down your price point, you get more volume. You get more people who can afford your product. So if they can do more volume, even at a lower margin, they can make more profit. So everybody benefits from the cost of things going down, except the government. When the government is, has a bunch of debt and they need inflation to wipe it out, or you know they're trying to prop up financial bubbles or create the illusion of prosperity by fooling the public, into thinking they're wealthier because they're creating inflation that's masquerading as economic growth. But these central banks have you know, conned everybody. So initially, then they had a group of economists that believed, you know, falling prices are bad. We should have the central bank shoot for stable prices, which meant prices that were the same over time. But now, since that wasn't enough, they wanted even more inflation. They weren't content with just robbing us of the benefit of a falling price. Now they wanted prices to go up. So now they've redefined stable prices. Stable prices are no longer stable. They're prices that go up by 2% a year. Well, I mean, that's a lot of price. That means prices double, what, every 20 years? The cost of li- That's not stability. But my point was that right now you've got 1.9% year-over-year CPI Eurozone. You've got 2.2 or 2.3 in Germany. And the Germans don't like that. And by the time you get the, the uh, official inflation rate in the ECB over 2%, which will be there shortly. And now Germany is over two and a half. The Germans, the Bundesbank in particular, are going to put pressure on the ECB. Hey, take your foot off the gas. We're well above 2%. We are above your ceiling. Step on the brake. There's going to be nobody in the US saying step on the brake, but the Germans will be forcing uh, the ECB. So the real divergence could be the ECB is tightening and the Fed is... So there's a lot of surprises that are in store for people. And everybody is loaded up on the wrong side of this trade. So again, you you get into the right markets, get into gold, get into these stocks, uh, get into some of the emerging markets, get into the currencies that are going to gain the most when the dollar loses and just ride it out. You know, I don't even think there's that much time left. I mean, how much longer can they postpone this given how big the numbers already are and how far down the rabbit hole we've, we've already climbed? So I don't think you're going to have to wait that much longer. But you know what? Even if you do, so what? I'd rather wait and make a bunch of money then just lose all the money I think I've made because I stay at the party too long. All right. Well, very interesting perspective as we expected around here. But with this, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. But before you get out of the doors here at the Double Line offices, Sam wants to introduce you to a little game we play at the end of each podcast. Oh, a game. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's the, <laughs> the fun part of the podcast. It's called Sherman Says, and what I do is I alternate between Sherman and yourself. And what I do is I say a phrase, and with that, you give a one-word response. I say one word, 
people aren't able to do it, so you feel free to, to give a phrase limited to a, maybe a paragraph. <laughs> well, I'll see if I can do it in a word. <laughs> right. So here we go. That's the challenge, right? Okay. So we'll start off with Mr. Sherman with yield curve. It's flat. And Mr. Schiff, trade war. Mistake. Cucumbers. Toxic. Favorite junk food. Pizza. Fiscal. I thought, I thought pizza was healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Fiscal policy. Ill-timed. Inflation. Government. Retirement. Longer. Recession. Government. Household savings. Non-existent. Income tax. Unconstitutional. Ah, that was the one thing we wanted to talk about I didn't get around to. So anyway, I got to thank my guest today, Mr. Schiff. Thanks for swinging by the offices. Great to see you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, appreciate the views. And uh, hopefully everyone found that interesting today. So as always, you can rate us out there on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, your favorite uh, podcast serving uh, application. And uh, look forward to us in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Including mine too, right? I do my own podcast. So people want, if they haven't had enough, from this podcast, you know, Shift Radio or Peter Schiff, I try to do uh, a couple of podcasts a week if I have time, sometimes more. So, yeah, I've got uh, plenty of content. Absolutely. And uh, it is interesting. We like the intro music to it as well. Uh, we find it quite Yeah, you know, a lot of people tell me they get all excited when they hear it. Oh, so yeah. thanks again, Mr. Schiff. It was great to talk to you. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respective direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.